We're in, we're in difficult times. Difficult times are things that you like to talk about in the past tense, not things that you enjoy when they're going on. But when we look back at our difficult times in our lives, one of the things that we all have to acknowledge is how much difficult times have been used by God to make us grow and to make us better. Hard times make us become more mature. Oftentimes we are jealous of the maturity and the confidence and the strength and the peace that older believers and older citizens have in difficult times. And we, we forget the price that they've paid in order to get there. We forget that they have that confidence and strength and peace because they have walked through God in those things before. And there's a sense in which while none of us wishes for difficult times, all of us have got to admit that we hope that through these difficult times, we might become more mature. We might not only become more godly as Christians, more more effective as Christians, but also that we would be more mature as adults in knowing how to face these difficult times. Uh, we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a perfect message for facing those kinds of difficult times. Because in the first few verses, verses 1 through 4, he speaks of what maturity is, the nature of maturity. If you have a Bible, if you'll turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want you to see how the Apostle Paul, in the midst of the dysfunction of the Corinthian church, turns them to the importance of maturity. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but by, as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? The apostle goes back to the conflict that he had mentioned in chapter 1, and that was the division of the church according to different personalities. They had become a celebrity-focused church. Some said, I am a Paul, some, I am Apollos, some of Peter, and some of Christ. And he says, this brings us to the real issue here, and that is your babies. You're acting like babies. He said, I, I, I'd love to talk to you as if you were spiritual, as, as if you were mature, as if you knew what it was to, as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 5, walk in the Spirit. You, you were people who knew what it was to spend each day in dependence on the Spirit and living in conjunction with the spiritual desires that come from God. But instead, you're fleshy, literally the term is. You, you live like the flesh demands. You live based on your immediate desires. Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I tired? What do I want? It, it's, it's analogous to the way a child behaves. When you're around a small child, all they're aware of is just what they want right now. And if what they want is big brother or big sister's toy, then they take it away. That's what they want. And one of the things we seek to teach babies and young children is what it means to live in conjunction with other people, live beyond their human fleshly desires. 
The apostle goes on to say, I gave you milk, uh, but not solid food because you weren't ready. I, I, I taught you the basic essentials of the gospel, but you weren't ready because you're still, and he literally says, fleshly. The first time he says you're fleshy, you're acting as if your flesh is defining you. Now he says you're acting with all of the moral codes that are identified with the flesh. You're worldly. You're, you're living your life in a way that's inconsistent with the desires of the Spirit. And he's creating a contrast between that which is led by the Spirit and that which is led in our flesh. Uh, Literally, in verse 1, he says, you're acting like babies. You're acting like babies. Uh, all of us have had that accusation made to us at one time or another. We men are famous when we have a, a virus or the flu or a cold, or for that matter, we're just tired, acting like babies. Most of us, our wives, have pointed out to us at one time or another how we behaved in a fairly childish way because we didn't feel real good. The Apostle Paul is literally saying the same thing. You're, you're acting in a way that's inconsistent with adulthood. You're worldly. And I know that because there's je jealousy and quarreling among you. Uh, you. You're turning on each other. You're comparing yourself to each other. You're dividing among each other. One of the great barometers of the health of a body of believers is, is their unity. Because Jesus himself said the second great commandment is to love other people as ourselves. And if, if we are jealous or if we are quarreling, then we're not actively loving, which reflects the fact that our focus isn't on loving God, which reflects the reality that we are not keeping in step with the Spirit. Uh, are you not acting? I love this phrase. It's literally, are you not walking? like mere humans? Have you ever considered that in the Bible, once we unite ourselves to Christ and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in Paul's mind, we're no longer mere humans because we are people united with the triune God in a, in a way that we don't fully understand nor can we fully explain, but we have the Holy Spirit. We are in Christ and therefore, there is a supernatural element that God intends to reshape who we are, reshape our desires, reshape our motivations, reshape how we respond to the difficulties of life because we are no longer mere humans. The sad thing is that all too often we who call ourselves followers of Christ act like mere humans. And in the Corinthian church, it was evidenced by the fact that they aligned themselves with Paul or Apollos. They, they claimed that they had their own heroes and, and were losing sight of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. They were acting like mere humans. What is maturity? What, what is adulthood? What, the Apostle Paul loves the, the verb to walk. He, it, re, it repeatedly occurs here and in other epistles because it is such a perfect metaphor for what it is to live the Christian life. And 
in, in Paul's mind, it is to keep in step with the Spirit. It is walk side by side with the Spirit in his desires, his motivations, so that our lives are consistent with what he calls us to do. Uh, it, is, it is something we do on a daily basis. And, and many of us know what it is to, on any given day, to stray away from the footpath that the Spirit is on, to, to veer away from the direction that the Spirit would have us go, and, and in doing so, to lose that connection with what He values and what He wants. And, and there have been many phrases used for that, uh, carnality, living apart from His Spirit, um, being out of fellowship. All of those are phrases that define when we are no longer keeping in step with Him. But Scripture also says, apart from the immediate dependence and walk with the Spirit, there is a maturity that comes from walking with Him over time, from experiencing faith with Him in multiple circumstances, that, that as we live with Christ, as we live in dependence upon His Spirit, as we go through life, and learn what it is to follow Him in different circumstances, there is a maturity that comes that can't be accomplished immediately. It is a weight that comes from having depended on Him through multiple circumstances. Uh, if each of us thinks about to, back to the early days of our career, we remember what it was to perhaps be smart, be educated, but to lack experience in our career. So, while we knew a lot of things, we actually didn't know how to do our job. We learned our job by doing it. We, we experienced what it was to go to work each day and pick up the phone or have a meeting or do the task. It, it, the, the maturity in the job comes from having done it over time. And in many ways, the same thing has to occur in the Christian life. We we learn what it is to depend on Christ in different circumstances as we go on. Initially, we learn the basics. We learn to pray. We learn what it is to study the Scriptures, to be united with other Christians, and to serve the body of Christ as well as the community around us. We, we do those things which are a part of obedience, and that's the primer of Christianity, learning those basic things. But, but the hard work of Christianity is walking with the Spirit in the difficulties of life, learning what it is to parent as a Christian, be married as a Christian, be a citizen and community as a Christian, to do our jobs as a Christian, to relate to our neighbors as a Christian, to go through difficult times as a Christian, and sometimes even more difficult, go through prosperity as a Christian. In other words, we, we learn the maturity by experiencing walking with Him as we go through different circumstances with Him. And the Apostle Paul says, well, I taught you for a long time. We know that Paul was there for over a year and a half, probably more time than he spent with most of the churches he established. Um, and in spite of Apollos' emphasis and, and service there, in spite of multiple teachers, in spite of multiple opportunities, because they are still divided, they show their immaturity, their, their lack of dependence on Christ. And therefore, he says, you're fleshly. And the reality is that, that whether it's in work or in life or in families, that some people have a lot of experience, but they never get mature. 
And, and some people mature more fast than others because they, they work to learn, to depend, and to grow. So the Apostle Paul begins this discussion with reminding them of what maturity is, which defines what their goal should be, because they've taken their eye off of what should have been their emphasis. Next, he, he goes into a discussion of the nature of the church and the nature of serving the church, because that was their fundamental error. In verse 5, after what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? We're only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll be each rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet shall be saved, even though only as one escaping through the fire. He, he, he begins by going strictly to the exact issue that they're facing, and that was they had aligned themselves with Apollos and Paul. And he said, you don't understand what the work of the church is. Because you think it's about us. That because I, I planted the seed, I was the founder of the church, that that it's my church, or because Apollos came and, and spoke eloquently and helped you grow, that it's his church. The reality is the work of the church, the work of Christianity is a supernatural work. And as such, only God can accomplish it. Uh, we're simply his servants, but God is the author of results. Uh, we are simply laborers, whether in the field, the first metaphor he uses of planting seeds and watering them and watching the plants grow. Can any farmer claim that he makes the seed grow? Of course not. He, he recognizes that his job is just to do the things that, that cooperate with God's supernatural work of bringing life from a seed. And the fact is that the work of the body of Christ is the same thing. It's a supernatural work. It's not just building buildings or gathering people or singing songs or speaking. The work of the church is ultimately about taking dead people who are estranged from God and introduce them to the one who makes their souls alive when they trust in Christ. The work of the church is, is about changing hearts that have been victimized by the sin of the world, the darkness of the world, become hardened in self-protection and allowing them to become alive, hearts of flesh that respond to the love of God and in loving others. 
The work of the church is not just carving a place in a community. It's, it's, it's bringing redemptive truth to a community so that the light and salt of the gospel allows people to see who God is by the work that we do. The, the work of the church is not the energies of humans. The work of the church is to be obedient to Christ so that the triune God works in our midst. The sad reality is there are many churches today where there are great buildings and great programs and, and great services, but God's not at work. And one of the great things that you and I should fear is that, that we get so busy in our lives and even in our Christian lives and yet do it in, in separation from our Savior and without a dependence on the Spirit so that we somehow think that we're doing it when only a supernatural God can accomplish spiritual work. One of the reasons that walking with God over time becomes so powerful is, is you see God show up. You learn to see how God intervenes in your lives and how in doing so, He brings redemptive joy when there is difficulty and sadness. If you sit with any mature believer who's walked with Christ over time and, and ask them to tell you stories, over time, as they become more comfortable, they'll start reminding you of ways that God showed His grace and mercy in their lives. Of the times when things were really hard, and yet God blessed in a way that they could have never predicted. When they felt truly alone, and God, by His presence, gave them peace, and then brought people into their lives who reflected the grace and mercy of God. The reality is that as we walk through these times, we, we come to see how God intervenes. And that's why these difficult times can become such touchstones in our lives, because as we go back to them, we, we are reminded how God did things that only He could do. He appeared in ways that so clearly what it is. The, the sad thing is the immature believer doesn't see God's hand in their lives. They, they, we get to thinking it's something we did. But spiritual eyes have that ability to see God's hand so that, using the metaphor of the farm, when they, they see the seed grow, they don't think it's their labor. They, they understand it's, it's the life-giving power of God that makes a plant grow. And is the life-giving power of God that, that changes lives and is the work of the church. And God forbid that we get so busy doing God's work that we neglect that reality of depending on His supernatural work among us. Paul said, I, I laid a foundation. That's what a wise builder do, and everything else is building on it. But we should be careful. Verse 11 because there's only one foundation, and that's Jesus Christ our Lord. The, the church is not built on legal status with the state. It's not built on hard work of preachers. It's not built 
on a concrete foundation on a location. The, the church is a mystical organism built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. His character, his person, his work. And, and he carries on having denied their false understanding of what the work of the, God, of the church is. Now he shows them their better understanding. And that is that, that we each come and, and lay our own work on the foundation of Christ. We, we build into it and through our own obedience. And, and by inference, he says, some of you are building on things that are valuable and, and lasting and eternal. And uh, he uses the description of gold and silver and precious stones. Some of you, by your efforts, are, are mystically and, can I say, magically adding on to Christ's work as you bring the redemption of the, his gospel into all of your lives. But some of you, it's just wood, hay, and stubble. One of the realities of all believers, or perhaps we in vocational ministry are particularly aware of it, is that we could spend our whole lives and it have no value. We could build great churches and they'll have no lasting effect. That we could go to committee meetings, we could preach sermons, we could, we could do all the right things, but not be building the supernatural work of God. Because Paul says, someday your work will be tested as though by fire. And, and that fire will reveal what was permanent and lasting and precious, and it will destroy that which was done for the wrong motives, self-aggrandizement, advancement of self, fleshly desires, and that which is permanent, which is, was based on the work of Christ to bring Christ's glory and to expand His work. Clearly, he's speaking of believers because he said, those who have built on things which perish are still going to be saved, but they will be snatched as though from the fire. He introduces an idea here, which is quite frankly one of those the greatest mysteries in the Christian life for me, and that is he says that there will be reward based on how we work. And, and Scripture clearly teaches in Jesus' teaching as well as in the epistles that there are rewards for faithfulness to the body of Christ. We oftentimes think it's rewards for material success, the reward of a big church, the reward of a big company, the reward of a big family, whatever it is. The Scripture seems to imply, though, that, that the rewards will be rooted in our faithfulness and our love of Christ. That some will come to Christ in the last days and the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But they say, Lord, didn't I call you Lord? And he'll say, yeah, but, but it wasn't about me, it was about something else. Uh, testing is a time that strips away all of those other motives and helps us to see what are we really here for? What is the work we've truly been called to do. 
And men and women, we are called to build the Lord's kingdom, build His church. And, and while certainly the local church is incredibly important, it is the means by which God does His work in a community, it ultimately all feeds into the universal church, the body of Christ, which is believers all around the world, of anyone who lays their heart dependence upon Christ for their salvation, His finished work on the cross. And, and today we come together online as, as a part of the universal church with the desire to worship and praise Him because of who He is and all that He's done. And to celebrate Him and to be a part of that work. Next week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have communion as a part of our service. I, I read a theologian just this week who said, you can't do communion on a streaming service. I respect his opinion. I think he's wrong. Um, so we're going to have communion. And, and so if when you get to go to the store this week, if you want to buy some juice and some crackers or bread for that time so you can celebrate with your family while you're watching the service, that'll be great. Uh, uh, certainly the intention is that the communion table is one that we come together in the local church as an expression of the body of Christ. But in light of the fact that we cannot do that, we're going to do it through the streaming. Uh, the reason we're going to go in and do it is, is first of all, communion is, is rooted in the Passover meal, which was done by families in the Old Testament. It was a family meal. So you will be doing communion as a family in the same sense that they did with the Passover meal. The other reason I think it's defensible to do is when Jesus commanded it, he said, do this as you remember me. And I can't think of another time when it's more important that we remember our Lord, his sacrifice, and that that's why we come together. That it's building his work, his church, because of his sacrifice that causes us to worship, even if it's online. In verses 16 and 17, he, he reminds them of the nature of the work. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. He said, you, you've got it all wrong. You're, you're, you're seeing the church as an institution like a secular organization with, with celebrity heads and important people and, and choosing up sides of which stripe you like most. But he says the body of Christ is, is us. We are the temple. Because just as in the sense of the Old Testament, the, the Lord's presence was specially made known in the temple in Zion, the reality in Jerusalem, the reality is today... The followers of Christ are the temple. We are where Christ dwells, and we are together building him up because we are called to do his work. We are Christ's church. In other words, don't sell yourself short as aligning yourself with some human leader as if that gives you a sense of something to be proud of. The reality is you're much more significant. You are the building blocks of the work of God in the world, his temple, his church. Finally, in verses 18 through 23, he does what maturity often does. 
Because maturity brings clarity of focus. Uh, see, when we're new to something, uh, we hear so much information. We try to grasp so much, so many details that we begin to get confused to what really matters. And, and one of the things that maturity does is maturity, because of experience, knows how to bring a laser focus on the essence of the issue. What really matters here? Uh, I spent a number of years in academic administration. One of the things that we always had to watch for is that sometimes you could slide into the idea that for schools, the students got in the way. I mean, the, you know, they were a bother. They had questions. They complained. They, they, they were always yipping about something. And it, it was tempting as an administrator to think, if we just didn't have these students around here, we'd have a great school. But obviously, maturity would step back and say, we aren't a school without students. We have no, the very reason we exist is these students. Maturity brings a clarity of focus of what it's all about, what we're really here for. In verses 18 through 23, Paul does that in the context of their immature understanding. He said, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks you're wise... Remember, that was the theme last week, what is real wisdom. By the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you're of Christ. And Christ is God. What does he say? Don't, don't get confused with all that other stuff. It's all about Jesus, and it's all His. The body of Christ is the body of Christ, and we are merely servants of that work that He is doing in the world. And when you think of what causes difficulties among Christians, it's oftentimes getting caught up in our institutional loyalties or our disagreements over relatively minor or petty things. But when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, suddenly there becomes a clarity because uh, I, I don't remember a whole lot of geometry. It was not my favorite math course. I can't draw a straight line. What's the point? But one thing I do know is that as two things approach the same point, they come closer and closer together. And we as the body of Christ, as we converge on the person of Christ, we all become more unified because we have Him in common. And the more we join Him in His work, the more we allow Him to do what He alone can do, and we get out of the way. Sure, we serve, just as the Apostle Paul served on the terms that probably none of us in our congregation will ever match. The sacrifice, the price he paid for the furtherance of the gospel around the world, no one did what the Apostle Paul did that I've ever met. Peter was the disciple who 
when he was crucified, said, crucify me upside down. I don't even deserve to die the way my Savior did. We don't know a lot about Apollo's life, but we know that these men and women in the early church made massive sacrifices for their love of Christ and what they wanted to accomplish. But one of the reasons they were so effective is they never forgot who they were doing it for. They were doing it for Jesus because we are His and He is God the Father's. And difficult times tend to strip things away, don't they? We get caught up in all kinds of things that seem so important at the time. Uh, we can get all a buzz about something that a week from now we won't even remember what it was about. We, we can worry about possessions. We can worry about experiences. We can worry about relationships on terms that are petty and insignificant. And, and we can subtly fall into giving our lives to pursuing goals for things that just frankly aren't going to last. One generation removed, no one will remember. To use the Apostle Paul's description, they will be destroyed as by fire. Uh, can I encourage you to use this time to grow? To strip away all of that stuff that doesn't matter and refocus your heart and soul on what it means to love God and love the people around you. To, to redefine your priorities in life based on the gospel, the, the good news that God intervened in this broken world and gave His only Son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for the sins of the world so, and be resurrected on the third day so that any of us who depend on Him can have eternal life too. To learn the distinction between the trivial and the significant and to live with that maturity of focus that because we haven't forgotten what matters we behave like adults not dependent on our, our whims or desires of our flesh but instead leaning in depending on walking with the spirit on what he would have us give our lives to these these could be hard times. No one knows how long this is going to go. No one knows how much impact it's going to have. Every church, every business, every family, every government, all of our world around us is struggling to know how we should respond. But I know this much. Those of us who know Jesus know what matters. And if we allow the difficult times to strip away those peripheral issues, we can experience a whole new maturity and joy of walking in concert with the work of God and experiencing what fellowship with Him brings and knowing that what we're giving our lives to can last for an eternity. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it's very, very simple for us
to lose sight of what matters. It's very common for us to get caught up in our desires and the attractions of the world around us, and in doing so, to neglect the things that you have told us matter. Lord, I pray that you would use these times to remind us that knowing you as Christians is the focal point upon which, the foundation upon which we build our lives. Lord, reshape our priorities so that we make important what you have made important, people, family, eternal good. And help us to see how much of our energy is wasted on, on things that just don't matter. Help us in our time alone with you to fall in love with you more. And help us to experience your gospel in a whole new way as we experience what it is to depend on you, even in hard things. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.